Our gospel lesson for the day is found in Matthew chapter 4. We're beginning to read in verse 23 and we'll read into chapter 5, verse 16. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. And Father, we come and we confess our confidence that this is your word, your very truth that you have revealed to us. And we ask this morning that you will teach us, that you will make us to know your ways, that you will guide us into all truth as your spirit illumines our hearts. And so we ask that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning we come to the foot of a mountain, quite literally, the foot of a mountain where Jesus has gone up, he has sat down, and we are told he opens his mouth and begins to teach. There's a great deal going on in those little dense verses, quotations actually from Psalm 78 and Isaiah 2. But we do come to the foot of a mountain because this sermon, some of the most famous words that Jesus has ever preached in chapters 5 through 7, it is a well-structured three-point outline complete with an introduction and a conclusion. If you ever make fun of the three-point outline again, I will tell you that it's biblical. This is the way Jesus preached. But despite all of the neat structure and the tight arguments that Jesus is going to use, 
The Sermon on the Mount has also inspired a heap of controversy. There are many different ways of relating to it, and it oftentimes leaves the average layperson attempting to read their Bible in somewhat confusion of how exactly do they understand what's happening here. And the overwhelming problem has been reading chapters 5, 6, and 7 abstracted from everything else that happens in the Gospel of Matthew. That is that this Sermon on the Mount, as we call it, gets pulled out of the larger book and it gets taken and read on its own. Now, some did this because they didn't really like the other parts of the Gospel of Matthew. That is all the supernatural stuff and then the stuff that goes on with this vicarious substitute who was a righteous one dying in the place of others. People like Thomas Jefferson in our own country didn't really like those parts of the gospel, but really liked Jesus' ethical teachings. Okay, and so places like the Sermon on the Mount were prized and they were thought to be important. Now, others did this because they wanted to purify the church. They looked at the life of the church and just felt like it was full of complacency, and so they wanted to take Jesus seriously. And the demands of the Sermon on the Mount are rigorous, and there was a radicalness here that was captured. And so the Sermon on the Mount became the rallying cry for different movements of reform after the Protestant Reformation. They were focused on the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount. But what tended to happen were that there was then a conglomeration and a growth of legalistic requirements, and the sermon was thought of as something like the entrance requirements for getting into the kingdom of heaven. Now it's critical in all of the stuff that happens between those two errors to recognize two things. And the first is this, is that the Sermon on the Mount is nicely arranged itself, but it's also nicely arranged inside the Gospel of Matthew. There are actually five teaching sections in which Jesus gives longer orations in the Gospel of Matthew. The first is found here in chapters 5 through 7. Then we have another one in chapter 10 where he speaks to certain topics about uh, calling the disciples. And then we're going to find in chapter 13 he teaches on parables about the kingdom. And then chapter 18 he's going to discuss the life of the church. And then in chapters 23 through 25 he's going to speak some parables about the coming judgment. And each of these longer discourses are then followed by a recording of Jesus' actions, what he was doing on behalf of other people, and also his ministry to his disciples. And so what we find is that these five teaching blocks are not to be drawn apart and torn apart from one another, but rather they are to remain together. They, they were actually symbolic of the five books of the Pentateuch. And so the Sermon on the Mount was never meant to be abstracted and become a sermon unto itself or co the complete ethic of the Christian life. It's just simply a mistake to treat it that way. But then secondly, and perhaps more importantly, we also must always remember that the Jesus who goes up on this mount and opens his mouth and teaches and shares some very radical demands that we find very difficult to meet that the one who does all of that teaching is the same Jesus that we've been introduced to in the first four chapters of the gospel. The one who comes as Emmanuel, God with us, is the one who sits down to teach. Okay, The one who shall be named Jesus, 
who will save his people from their sins is the one who teaches the Sermon on the Mount. The one who is mightier than John the Baptist, who is baptized and the heavens open and the voice of the Father from heavens echoes through the creation and says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. That one who is recognized as the eternal Son of God who is elected by God himself and set apart for the mission of redemption, that he was going to be the one who suffered and gave himself for the sins of the world. This one is the one who teaches us in Matthew 5 through 7, the one who defeated the tempter, the one who said no to all the allurements, even all the kingdoms of the world with the opportunity to shortcut the sufferings of the cross. He said no when every one of us had said yes. This is the one who instructs us. And so what we have in Matthew 5 through, through 7 is we don't have a moralistic code. We don't have a ladder erected in front of us that we are to climb rung by rung to somehow reach our way into the heavens. This is not what we have in the Sermon on the Mount. We're not being taught to just clean up our act in order to be pretty enough for God. So what exactly is it? How do we best understand what is in front of us? And as we look at the opening of this sermon today, looking at these first 16 verses, we find three levels of instruction for the church. And what we'll see is that we're going to learn about our foundation. That is our foundation as a church. We'll also see our character or something of our constitution. And third, we'll also learn about our goal as a community formed by Jesus. And so first, let's consider our foundation. If you look in verses 23 through 25, at the end of chapter 4, we see there the foundation of the church. Last week, we noted in verse 17 that Jesus began a preaching ministry, a simple message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But we noted that even though repent was the first word that it is the command of our Savior, that he doesn't say repent so that the kingdom of heaven will come. But rather he's announcing, he's calling us to turn from ourselves, to turn against our own beliefs, to turn against our own values, to turn against our own actions, because the kingdom of God is in breaking and is here. And so grace has come and therefore, he's inviting us to enter in as we turn away from ourselves. In verse 23, Matthew continues to describe Jesus' early ministry in this same gracious way. Consider what he says. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Jesus was healing and he was attracting people from far and wide. We're given the location of where people were coming from. And these are the four corners of Israel and from the center. And the point is just to say they were coming from everywhere because Jesus was doing awesome things. But it's critical to note the sequence of these events. We have verses 23 through 25 and then we transition into chapter 5 in verse 1. And noticing that transition is critical for your Christian discipleship. In fact, there may be nothing more important. 
Because before Jesus takes his disciples up the mountain to sit down and to instruct them and make radical demands upon their lives, you notice what he does. He brings healing and redemption. He's been out preaching the gospel of the kingdom, announcing that God is reconciling all things to himself through him, Jesus. And it's crucial for us always and everywhere to preserve this order of grace and then the response of gratitude. These two always belong together. They are like thunder and lightning. They have a relationship that cannot be severed, but they also must be kept distinct. They are two different things, and they also must be kept in their proper chronological order, that it is always grace, and that grace that enters into our life is then followed by the response of gratitude. Davies and Allison, commentators on the Gospel of Matthew, capture this beautifully, and it's just worth reading. Having done nothing, Nothing at all, they, speaking of the disciples, are benefited. So grace comes before the task, succor before the demand, healing before the imperative. The first act of the Messiah is not the imposition of commandments, but the giving of himself. Today's command presupposes yesterday's gift. And friends, this is one of the most important things for us as a church always to guard. And it's why we visit the topic so often, that we must maintain this order. Because there is something native to our broken hearts that desires to overcome this order. That we desire to bring God under our own management and control. We desire to domesticate the grace of the gospel and to make it something that we can control and bring God into our debt by doing something for him that he must then do something for us. And what we learn from Jesus here is that it's just not the way it works. This weekend, my family was visiting and I have a nephew who was born with the difficult condition of spinal bifida. He has no use of his legs from his waist down. But from the earliest weeks of his life, he was in physical therapy, and he is one of the strongest oxes I have ever met. And he understands that he has limitations, but he lives as if he has no limitations. This weekend, he was here for a wheelchair basketball event, and so our family was able to attend yesterday and to watch his team play. It's amazing. I've never quite seen anything like it. There were plays. There were picks set, there were intricate passing that took place, there were shots made, everything was happening that you see in a normal basketball game. Now my nephew and his friends understand that they face limitations. Most did not have the use of their legs. But each of them was also extremely capable, extremely determined. And they were out there against what many would say the odds are, and they were making it happen. And friends, one of the problems that we have in the church is that we view ourselves like that. That's how we want to see ourselves. As sinners, we want to see ourselves as facing some limitations, but extremely capable. That is not what the gospel is saying to you. You are not just someone who's in need of help. What's being said to us in the gospel is that we are helpless. 
You are not someone who's capable. You are not someone who just needs a little bit of aid. And that's how we so often want to relate to God. Just clean up the mess and we got the rest under our control. And this is not understanding that priority of grace and the dynamic of gratitude. It's not getting it. And that the foundation of the church, we're then eroding it away. Because the foundation of the church is the proclamation that each of us is helpless. Spiritually bankrupt. Unable to do anything for ourselves. And it is Jesus, the beloved son who comes on our behalf and suffers in our place. That he alone is the one who reconciles us to God. And this is the foundational message of the church. This is what we see unfolding here as Jesus heals and preaches the kingdom. Doing something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. Second, as we move into the Sermon on the Mount in verses 1 through 12, we see the character of the church. These are well-known words spoken by Jesus. And despite their fame, they are typically misunderstood. Frequently, we do approach them as those entrance requirements. If this, then that. If I am poor in spirit, then God will grant me the kingdom of heaven. This is the way we typically hear it. But this flatly contradicts the way that Jesus preaches and everything we know about the grace of God. The kingdom is a gift. It comes to us. It descends down from the heavens. It's something God does for us. And the Beatitudes are not to be understood as this progressive rungs of a ladder that we are trying to steal our way up into heaven on. This is not what Jesus is saying. Others misunderstand the Beatitudes in a particular way where there's something like blessings or benedictions. In the Old Testament, you find things like this, benedictions that are announced. The priests of Israel announce them. Sometimes human beings will announce them. Sometimes God announces them. And there's a certain word that's used in both the original Hebrew and in the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament for those benedictions. And a benediction works like this, that a word is announced over someone, and when that word is received in faith, it becomes effectual. That God blesses, that the speech is effective speech. And this is the way that the, uh, what are called the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 are frequently understood, that these are benedictions, Jesus blessing us with these character qualities. But the problem is, is that that word is not the same word that's used. The word here that Jesus uses in Matthew 5 is different from the one in the Old Testament. And what we have here, rather, in these Beatitudes are something like a statement of fact. They're observations about how to flourish in life. You find these also in the Old Testament. We read one in the call to worship today from Psalm 34. We also read one in the Psalm of the Day from Psalm 32. That they're just observations, statements of fact about how to flourish and live well in life. It's a piece of wisdom for us about how to live in light of God's inbreaking kingdom. And what these beatitudes do is cast a vision of life for us about what it means to have a life well lived because the grace of God is operative in and among us. And so these are not entrance requirements. It's not, if you do this, then God will do this for you. It's casting a vision about the character that God wants to form and instill inside of his church. He reveals his will to us. 
And so Jesus issues nine Beatitudes, and it will be impossible today to address them all specifically. But he begins with four Beatitudes that are concerned with our disposition. This is our attitude, our stance before God. In verse 3, he addresses poverty of spirit. And he says, to the poor in spirit belongs the kingdom of heaven. And you could translate that for as because. Blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so those who have been blessed by God, who, who, who know and have entered into the kingdom of heaven, they are the poor in spirit. Those are who, the ones who have acknowledged their condition of need before God. They are spiritually bankrupt. In verse 4, we read, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, mourning is not simply those who experience grief or loss here. It's connected to the larger context that those who mourn are those who recognize that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. It's those who grieve their own personal sin, their own partaking in the sin of Adam and Eve and of all humanity. It's those who look at the world and its condition and the sadness, public shootings and loss and crippling diseases, sickness, starvation, who sees all the broken systems of the world and grieves and mourns and recognizes how it's not supposed to be this way. Blessed are the mourn, or those who mourn. And then in verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek are not those who just roll over, but they are the ones who are lowly and they are gentle. They are powerless. They acknowledge their dependence on God. And what they don't do is they do not revel in their self-sufficiency. They live in that sense of dependence. And Jesus is here is quoting directly from Psalm 37 and verse 11. And then in verse 6, the final of this first set, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. And so those who hunger and thirst, they, rec they recognize that they lack something. They recognize that they lack true food. And they recognize that what truly satisfies us in life is the living God, to hunger after his righteousness, to want it. They are starved for and empty of that righteousness, but they are desperate for it, looking to God alone to give it. And so these first four concern our dispositions towards God. And this is the character of the church that Jesus is instilling in his disciples then and there and here and now. And he is telling us that this is the way. Those who have been healed, those who have been brought into my kingdom, live this way. This is what it means to flourish as a human being. This is what it looks like. But then he takes us into the second set of four where we're not so much concerned with dispositions before God as our deeds in the world. In verse 7, what we find, blessed are the, excuse me, blessed, yeah, in verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And the merciful are simply those who help another person in need. And then in verse 8, we read about the pure in heart. And the heart was understood as the seat of everything about who a human being is. It is the core of their being. And so everything about someone's actions flows from the heart. And so it's crucial and it's critical to guard the heart and to protect it. And then in verse 9, we read about the peacemakers who are blessed. 
These are the ones who seek reconciliation. And that is not that they just simply cut for a middle way in which no one is offended, but they seek reconciliation as they're able to provide it. They pray for enemies and they forgive debts. They are those who seek to make peace. And then in verse 10, we read about the persecuted. These are those who experience hardship on account of Jesus, whether that hardship be social uh, or spiritual opposition. However it is experienced, it's in Jesus' name. And then so after these four deeds are mentioned, Jesus then wraps it up with one final beatitude in verses 11 and 12, once again circling on the theme of persecution. But what he is doing here is describing and drafting for us the character of the church. Not a character that somehow earns God's grace, but it's the character of response, it's the character of gratitude. And the disciple recognizes and hears the voice of the master and says, yes, this is the way of flourishing. This is the right way of being. As those who've been healed and those who have been redeemed and brought into the gracious ways of God, we then respond saying, teach me your ways. Take me deeper into these truths. Make me know your paths. This is the way of the Christian disciple, and this is how we want to be, with Jesus on the mount, sitting at his feet, listening as he opens his mouth, allowing him to guide us into all truth. This is Jesus' ministry among us. But third, in Jesus' introduction to this sermon... In verses 13 through 16, we also see the goal of the church. Jesus has just instructed us as to the church's character. That is what he's seeking to do within us. And these beatitudes are that invitation to this way of being, a character that flourishes. And then Jesus is going to turn, and in these verses, in verses 13 through 16, he's going to discuss what it means for this flourishing to spread to the world. Because this flourishing is going to spread in relational manner, and that's through his body of disciples, the church. And so to do so, he picks up on a biblical image. It's actually from the second chapter of Isaiah, and I'd encourage you to turn there. In Isaiah 2, in verses 2 through 5, listen carefully to these words. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. It's amazing actually to see how much resonance with those words of Isaiah that all that resonance that is in this passage in Matthew 5, the themes of light, of the nations coming to a mountain, of being taught and instructed. And what Jesus tells us is that this church, it is sitting like a city upon a hill. 
a city set upon a mountain, and its light is shining, and there are two dominant metaphors that he uses here to describe the church. He speaks of the church as salt, and he speaks of the church as light. Salt, of course, in the ancient world was a preservative. It was used to purify things, it was used to flavor things, and it was used, it was used to kill off dangerous organisms. Here's the thing about salt. It never existed for itself. It was used for certain tasks. And salt's main purpose was to penetrate food and to save it. And so this is what Jesus is saying the church is. Light, of course, pierces. In the ancient world where there wasn't such thing as light pollution, night was very dark, very difficult to penetrate, so dark that you can barely see your hand in front of your face at night. And so light was a powerful metaphor. It pierces, it cuts through darkness. And light in the Bible is always connected to themes of knowledge, of justice, of wisdom, and of salvation. And Jesus is saying that you, my blessed people, who've been brought into the kingdom by the grace of God, in whom I'm now forming character, that you are salt and you are light, that you are a city set upon a hill. And then he tells us why. If you look carefully in verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That in living out the character that Jesus has assigned to us, we are light in the world and that some will see it and they'll respond and they'll give glory to God. And we'll see some do that in small ways and some do it perhaps in demonstrable ways. There will be a scale. And Jesus has already warned us that some are not going to like you for it. That you take up this character of peacemaking, of being merciful, of being humble before God, of hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And some are not going to love you for it. And then he turns and says, but as you are this salt and as you are this light, some will turn and give glory to God. And friends, this is the church's public relations department. It's not a great internet site, even though you can have those. It's not a great communications housing, even though you can do that too. But the church's best PR comes through its good works. Those good works that are not designed to leverage God and somehow gain the upper hand on him, but those good works that are the response of gratitude. It is that humble disposition before God. It is those deeds before the world in which we're merciful and we're kind and we don't chafe even when persecuted. It's that kind of life that Jesus says is salt and it's light, and this is the goal of the church. And so, friends, despite all the confusion that exists around the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus goes up on this mount and sits down and opens his mouth and teaches the disciples, he is teaching us the way, the way of being his people in the world today inside of all of its complications, that, yes, the kingdom has come. The kingdom is arriving, and the kingdom will come. And he's leading us into, into the truth of how we live between those times, these dispositions before God, these deeds, these good works. This is the way he is saying, as you believe and as you entrust yourselves to me in my preaching of the gospel, 
my bringing you into the kingdom of heaven, this is now the blessed way of life. And so hear him as he teaches us about the foundations of the church, the character of the church, the goal of the church, to be salt and light. And let's ask him to continue to teach us his way, to guide us into all of his truth, to form us as his disciples. Let's pray. Father, we confess our need to be taught, to hear the master, to hear these blessings announced, and to be instructed and guided into the truth of them. Help us to know how to bring them to life, what it means to live in these dispositions before you, what it means to be filled with good works and deeds that honor you. And God, ever increasingly will the world see the distinction and the difference. And may they turn to glorify you on account of your work within us. Form us and shape us in this way. Grant us this fruit, we pray in Jesus' name.